0: Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I don't know if you remember what your life was like before Jesus. I I do know that some of us are, you know, fortunate to have grown up in families where maybe you can't remember a time when Jesus wasn't part of your life. The, the change in your life has been a gradual process, and, and that's really great. I want to celebrate that with you. I do know, though, that others of us uh, experienced that change really quickly, You know, almost overnight. There, there, was, there was a clear time when you were the person you were before Christ, and then you, you met him, and things changed pretty quickly, maybe not overnight, but over a very short period of time. Who you were in Christ was very different from who you had been before him. That's certainly been my story. And I do know that that's also the story of the person we're talking about this morning. Her name is Olga of Kiev, And, you know, I think her story helps us to appreciate that that's how it happens for some people. I think that Olga's life and other people's lives like this prove that God's word is alive and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. This morning we're continuing through our series called Biblical. The goal of what we're doing here is to help us to kind of cultivate a a better relationship with the Bible. And what I want to do to help us kind of cultivate a better relationship with the Bible is just to tell the stories of the saints over the years whose relationship with God through Scripture has been costly. And so when we were together last week, we learned about Athanasius of Alexandria, Now, I do want to give a bit of a warning. The first part of Olga's story sounds like something out of Braveheart or like Game of Thrones. Like, it's definitely dark. Now, I'm going to tone down the details because I know that in the room this morning we've got some kids. Okay, so this is the PG version. If you want to read the full details, you don't have to look very hard to find them. I do want you to know, though, Olga's story is dark. And yet, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, Olga is referred to as Saint Olga equal to the apostles equal to the apostles. So let me set this up for us by sharing a few bits of uh, by way of context. There's three kinds of three questions I think we want to ask. The first is a question of where where, okay? Now last week when we were learning about Athanasius, we saw that right from the very beginning Christians relied on scripture to have clear answers to their questions. Like there was, like for right from the beginning, we, de- we depended on the Bible to speak with clarity and authority and without errors about whatever it teaches. And in that conversation about, about uh, Athanasius, we also learned about Constantine. And he was the Roman emperor and he was a Christian. And Constantine changed everything when he made Christianity legal Okay, when he made Christianity legal. But the other thing that Constantine is remembered for is that in the year 330, he moved the capital of the empire from Rome all the way east to the city of Byzantium in Turkey, about 1,400 kilometers east. Today it's called Istanbul, but the city of Byzantium he renamed Constantinople. And before long, Constantinople is the strongest richest largest city in the world it's the new capital of a christian empire called the byzantine empire and 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 really now there's two kinds of places in the world there's christian lands and there's heathen lands all right if you're from one of the areas or the territories where the empire has has conquered you're part of christian lands and beyond that everything else is heathen lands that's where we're talking about it's also helpful to ask when? When are we talking about? Now this story takes place in the tenth century. This is the middle of what's often called the you know the, the Middle Ages or the or medieval period. Sometimes it's called the Dark Ages. And they're called Dark Ages with for good reason. It's because in the year four hundred ten the unthinkable happens and Rome is conquered. In fact, it's conquered easily because Rome had declined since the capital moved east. There's all kinds of reasons for the d- decline of Rome and the eventual uh, conquest of Rome. But the Roman culture, what, was, what was, had been glorious at the height of the Roman Empire, is almost gone. But what parts of it survive, survive in the form of, of Roman Catholicism. And so for centuries after the fall of Rome... Western Europe is struggling under plagues and wars and superstition. And as the centuries go by, these places are filled with people who identify as Christians who have no sense of the Scriptures. They don't read Scripture, you see, but they do know the seven deadly sins. And they know the Ten Commandments. And they know their their seven sacraments but they have never spent any time in scripture. See, in this period a faithful christian is somebody who prays to the saints because, you know, maybe maybe Jesus is busy, but the the saints are always available to pray and to help you, especially Jesus mother Mary. She will always answer our prayers and and the the thought is that, you know, there's each of the each of the saints has a sort of a job to do, you see. So if you lose something, then you can pray to Saint Anthony, who's the patron saint of lost things. If, you, if you're going on a long journey, you can pray to Saint Christopher, and he's the saint of, of travel. If you're going into battle, you can pray to Saint Michael, and on and on and on. Well, it's again, it's a superstitious time in the sense that you might wear a crucifix in order to ward off evil spirits, or you might hang a crucifix on the wall in your home, or you might, in a, in a village. Might build an entire shrine to Mary or to another saint in order to ward off demons. Well, during this time, the sacraments are everything as well. The sacraments are everything. I mean, it, it it really it's it's not such a big deal how you lived last week, as long as you are baptized and as long as you took communion on Sunday. That's when you know you're covered. That's when you know that you're safe and you're in God's good graces because you took the sacraments. And friends, that's what Christianity is in this period. So that's when we're talking about. Well, one more question is the question of who. Who? Who are we talking about? We're talking about people to the east. They're beyond the empire, people in heathen lands, beyond the superstitions of uh, the Roman Catholicism during the Dark Ages, and it's just different out there. You don't have national borders, outside the empire to the east, by, by and large at least, you, you've got village after village where people in one town speak a different language than the people in the next town. And their ancestors were Vikings and Slavs and Huns and Scandinavians, and they are hunters and they wear furs and skins and they're always cold. That's, that's the area we're talking about. These are people called the Kievan Rus the Kievan Rus. And the capital of this region, their, their kind of main stronghold, is in Kiev, this, the city that today is still called Kiev. And, and um, this, these people, they spread out all over what is today Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. It's a massive area. And in those days, the people are in these tribes, picture it, they're living in tribes and villages scattered throughout this region, and they all serve the same ruler, whose stronghold is in Ukraine. Now, about this ruler, he's not some fancy king wearing robes and a crown living in a castle. He is a warrior, and he became the ruler either by killing the king who came before him or by being such an impressive warrior that the king chose him to succeed him. The ruler is always a man, and the ruler lives in Kiev, and his job is to protect you from invasion. He... Uh, is He will send his army if there's an invasion from the north or the south or the, or the further east. And, uh, and in return for the king's protection, once a year, the towns and the villages offer the king tribute. It's not a tax. It's more like a fee. Like if you've ever seen in mafia movies where the, the, the godfather will send a couple of a couple of his uh, hitmen to go and visit a a store or a bakery or a market or something like that, and the shopkeeper will hand the person some cash, that's tribute, okay? So it's kind of the same sort of thing. In exchange for protection, these villages offer tribute, and they might pay with furs or skins or honey or wax, even slaves. And that's where we enter the story, because Our story begins when we meet Prince Igor of Kiev and his wife, Princess Olga. And Igor has just taken over as ruler of Kievan Rus because his dad, King Oleg, has just died. Igor thinks he's going to be a really tough guy. He's going to be a great king, great ruler, but time will tell. Now, as far as Olga, we don't really know much about her at this point. We just know that she is the descendant of Vikings and that she got married to Igor at about 15 years old. Well, a few years into his reign, in the year 945, Igor is making the rounds. He's going village to village with his entourage, and he's collecting tribute. One of those towns, that it's, which is settled by the Drevlians, they're not big fans of Igor. They loved his dad, But they don't think Igor is going to be a good ruler. They don't think they should have to pay him very much. They don't think he he deserves it. So they give just a few token bits of tribute. And after Igor heads back, he's like, no, 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 no. I, I deserve better than this. This can't stand. I need to make an example of them. So what does he do? He takes a couple of his companions. They go back to the Drevlians and insist on being paid what he is owed. Well, the Drevlians are led by their prince Mal, And Prince Mal orders the men to capture Igor and kill his companions, which they do. They take Igor and they tie him between two birch trees that have been bent down to the ground. And they tied Igor's arms to one of the trees. They tied his legs to another one of the trees. And then they cut the rope to see what would happen. And the trees snap back up vertical. And I'll just say Igor did not survive. Okay, Igor's entourage come back to Kiev and they tell Olga what's happened. Now it's just Olga, who's maybe twenty years old, and, and they've got a three-year-old son. Their son's name is Sviatoslav. Okay, I know it's not an easy name to say Sviatoslav, but uh, Sviatoslav is too young to rule, and so rather than the crown going outside the family. Olga puts herself forward and she insists that she is going to rule. She insists, I can do this. I'm going to be every bit as good a ruler as Igor would have been. In fact, she becomes the first queen in the history of Kievan Rus. And her first task as queen is revenge. Now, what comes next in the story of Olga of Kiev is what most of the historians focus on. These are Olga's four acts of vengeance against the Drevlians for what they did to Igor. So here's how it starts. So the Drevlian Prince Mal, after, just after killing Igor, sends ambassadors to Olga, and, and Prince Mal is like, Do you know what? I'm going to marry this woman. So he, he's going to propose marriage to her so that she can see what a real man is like. And she sends her, he, he sends his uh, ambassadors by boat. They arrive, they come up the river, they are docked on the bank of the river, not far from Olga's uh, fort in Kiev, and um, they're there to offer his proposal to Olga. Well, Olga responds to the messengers, to the ambassadors, she says, well, Prince Mel is right. Igor's dead, he's not coming back. I'll marry Prince Mel, but first, you guys, you ambassadors, you need to make a good impression on my men. Okay, if we're going to merge our two tribes here, you need to make a good impression. So you guys stay in your boat, show my people that you're too good to walk on our lands, and then tomorrow I'll send my men to come and carry you in the boat. And then once you arrive inside the fort, then I'll hear your proposal. So they hear that, they think that's a really good idea, it makes them look like they're really important. And so the next day, Olga's men come to the riverside. They pick up the boat. They carry the boat with Prince Mal's ambassadors, and they carry the boat into the fort like these guys are royalty, like this is a parade or something like that. What they didn't know, what Prince Mal's ambassadors didn't know, is that Olga had had her men dig a deep pit in the middle of the fort during the night, a super deep pit. And so the boatload of ambassadors being, is carried you know, through the gate into the fort, And they turn a corner and then, boom, Olga gives the order and her men drop the boat inside the pit and they fill the pit with dirt. Can you believe that? And so the Drevlian ambassadors, she has them buried alive. Well, that's the first act of vengeance. What do you think? That's Olga, equal to the apostles. Well, the story goes on because before word of what happened to the ambassadors could get back to Prince Mal, Olga sends him a message and says, dude, don't send me your your ambassadors. I want to talk to the nobles and the lords. Send me some people with real authority, and then we can talk about marriage. And so they do. Some nobles and and lords arrive in a couple of days. Olga says to them, okay, I'm happy to discuss marriage with you, but my goodness, you have been on this long journey, and you stink. So we'll talk about your proposal after you guys come to the bathhouse and you get yourselves cleaned up. So her men get to work preparing the bath. The Drevlian nobles, they're really excited because they spend all of life cold, right? And, and they're going get to get to have a hot bath inside the bathhouse. Well, once they're inside, Olga gives the word. And her men lock the bathhouse from outside. They nail it shut. And while the Drevlian nobles are relaxing inside the tub, Olga sets the bathhouse on fire. And the Drevlian nobles and lords are killed. Well, that's the second act of vengeance. Uh, the third one goes like this. So Olga, after this, she sends word to Prince Mal and says, your ambassadors and nobles are having such a great time here in Kiev. They don't want to leave. So I'll tell you what, Prince Mal, I'll marry you. But first, I need to meet you. I want to see who I'm marrying. So I'm going to come to you. You throw a big party for me and my men. And you're going to say that it's a party in honor of my late husband, Igor. And I want you to prepare mass quantities of mead. I'm talking all the mead. I want the mead flowing, okay? Now, if you don't know what mead is, mead is an alcoholic drink. It's made from fermented honey. So at the feast, Olga's men... They are holding their mugs full of mead, and they're pretending to get drunk on the mead, but the Drevlians are not pretending. They are actually drunk, like just stumbling, slur your words, drunk. Olga gives the order. Her men toss down their mugs of, of mead. They pull out their swords, and one by one they go around and they kill the Drevlian army. the The main source that we have for the history of Olga in this time says that something like 5,000 men were killed. 5,000 Drevlian men were killed. Well, this is the third act of vengeance. Well, the, and, here, and here's the final one. Because after the feast, Olga of Kiev launches an all-out war against Prince Mal and against the Drevlians. This is her f- sort of final act of revenge for what they did to Igor. And so, after about a year of, of siege warfare, Prince Mal still won't surrender. They're losing, but uh, they're able to hold out, and some of the larger houses are still standing. And Olga sends her ambassadors to speak with Prince Mal, and they're like, what are you guys waiting for? Like, we have overpowered you. You can't survive this. Why not surrender, spare your people? And Prince Mal is like, we don't trust her. If, if I surrender, she's just going to kill me anyway, so at least this way, me and my men, we die fighting. And uh, Olga makes an offer. She offers a a sort of a peace treaty. She says, I'll tell you what, let's have an end to this violence, okay? You give me three uh, pigeons and sparrows from each house as a sign of trust and I'll call off the attack. Once I have the birds, the war is over, all right? Well, the Drevlians are, are thrilled. They send the pigeons and sparrows to Olga. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but a pigeon and, and sparrows—they have actually a great sense of direction. They, it's not hard for pigeons and sparrows to find their way home and back to their nest, and that's why there's such a thing as homing pigeons. If you've ever—if you've ever uh, heard of that—so within a very short time, the Drevlians make an offering of, of cages and cages full of pigeons and sparrows. And uh, once Olga has the pigeons and sparrows, she instructs her men to tie a little piece of fabric and sulfur to the foot of each one. Over in the Drevlian town, the Drevlians are relieved because the war is over, because, after all, Olga said, once I have the birds, the war is over. Well, the the war would be over, but not the way that they thought. Because at night, Olga gives the order, and her men light the sulfur, and they release the pigeons. And uh, the pigeons, they... And the sparrows, they fly home to their nests and they settle in their nests with these little burning pieces of fabric attached. And it's like the sky is filled with these little flying torches. And they all settle in their nests, which of course catch fire and the nests burn the homes down. Ends up, they end up burning down all the buildings in the Drevlian town, including the home of Prince Mal. And that's, as far as we know, that's the end of Prince Mal. And again, one of the sources, the main source for Olga's story says that there was not a house that was not consumed. It was impossible to extinguish the flames because all the houses caught fire at once. Well, that's the fourth and final act of vengeance from Olga of Kiev. And most of the secular historians will end the story there. She's like this feminist icon. She's this tough woman you don't want to mess with. But after that, you know, Her story's not finished because she's still got a son to raise and she's got a kingdom that she needs to rule. In some ways, this is where her story begins. Now, somewhere along the line, as queen, she hears about this new God. It's a new God in the West, the Christ, who has conquered death, and she's interested. Okay? Now, she's. Loved by the people of Kievan Rus', she made them a great nation. The world is starting to take notice, especially in Constantinople. They're hearing about this great queen of Kievan Rus'. And in 954, Olga sets out for the capital. She sets out for Constantinople. And partly it's for political reasons, but partly it's for personal reasons. And uh, this trip is going to change her life. Now, just to be clear, she's coming from Kievan Rus', where they use spears and arrows and clubs and swords, and their forts are made of stones and sharpened logs. She gets to Constantinople, and it's a different world. Now, when I look at images of, of Constantinople in, in art, medieval art and stuff, I think like, that must be where Tolkien got his idea, he got his inspiration for the city of Gondor in Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm talking about? The city of Gondor, the white city? Well, the centerpiece of Constantinople, of course, is the the cathedral, the palace, which is now called the Hagia Sophia, or the Church of Holy Wisdom, which was just a marvel of architecture that was built in the 6th century. And it's still standing. Um, I know that some of you have been there. Hands up if you've been to the Hagia Sophia. You've ever been there? Yeah, okay, cool. Well, here's what it looks like now. Today, it's a historic site in Islam. It's, um, it's, it's still standing. After one and a half millennia, the Hagia Sophia still stands. Before it was uh, conquered by, by uh, Islam in the 15th century, it was the largest Christian cathedral in the world. Now, it's still an amazing building. It's still amazing, but if we want to get a sense of how it looked like or how it may have looked like in Olga's day, we actually can look at some of the art that survived like this image here, and isn't it mind-blowing? Wouldn't you just feel like you've set foot in another planet? Like even just you walk into this, this building, wouldn't you just feel, if you're Olga, like you've just walked into heaven itself? Well, Olga is brought inside the Hagia Sophia. She meets the two most powerful men in the world at the time. The first is the priest of the Hagia Sophia. He's the one who officiates the worship services. He, he leads the mass. He's like the Pope of the Eastern Church, and he's called the Patriarch Polyuchtus. The other man that Olga is introduced to is, of course, the head of the Empire, Constantine the Seventh. Okay, the seventh emperor to hold the name or the title of constant constantine well olga's going to spend three months there in constantinople learning from and, and worshiping with these men and she wants to become a christian she is overwhelmed with with joy and faith and she can't wait to take the gospel back to Kievan rus but first she needs to be baptized in fact there's a funny story uh, about her baptism, it turns out that uh, Constantine the Seventh had fallen in love with her, even though he was much older. And, and he says, and I quote, uh, "You are very fair of countenance and wise as well. You are worthy to reign with me in my city." Well, her answer to him, and this, this is not a quote, her answer is like, "Dude, I can't marry you. Like, I'm not even baptized. But I'll tell you what: if you help me make it happen, then we can talk about marriage." Well, Constantine the Seventh becomes her godfather. The patriarch baptizes her. Now, in the Eastern tradition, if you don't know, when a person is baptized, there's often a godparent. The godparent is there as a witness and is there to support the person being baptized. They, They promise to support you as you follow Jesus. And then you are baptized. You're immersed three times. Once each for the Father, and then again for the Son, and again for the Spirit. So after her baptism... Constantine the Seventh, he comes back to her and he's like, Well, so about getting married. Let's talk. What he doesn't realize is that it's actually forbidden within Roman Catholicism for a godparent to marry their godchild. And so Olga says, and I quote, How can you marry me after yourself baptizing me and calling me your, your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful. Well, Constantine says, and I quote again, Olga, you have outwitted me and instead he showers her with a ton of gifts and, uh, and and money and stuff for her to take back to the people of Kievan Rus. Well, after Constantinople, Olga comes home to Kievan Rus and she's a Christian. She's a different person. She takes the money and the gifts that she was given by Constantine the 7th and she turns that into schools and churches and relief for the poor and and uh, she's a good ruler. And the people love the innovations of, uh, that Olga brings in. They don't love her new religion. Almost nobody in Kievan Rus becomes a Christian in this time. In fact, most of them see her Christian faith as a liability. They think Christianity makes people weak. Her son, Sviatoslav, he wants nothing to do with Jesus. And by this time, he's old enough that he can rule. and he is a, He's the king, and he says to Olga, like basically, this is not a quote, but he's like, Mom, I've got this. You just go ahead and you read your books. You tell people about your Jesus. I'll rule. I'll do this my way. I'll rule the kingdom. And, and I'll tell you what, you can raise my boys for me. Now, by this time, Sviatoslav he's got three sons. Uh, I don't know what happened to his wife, but he's got three sons. And uh, Olga spends her last years caring for Svyatislav's three sons, uh, which are her grandsons. Their names are Yaropolk, Oleg, and Vladimir. And as she raises them, she teaches them about Jesus. Well, in the year 969, Olga dies, and she's brokenhearted, because not only has her son never come to faith, but she has prayed and prayed that Kievan Rus might turn to Jesus, and in in her lifetime, almost nobody has. Her, Her son ended up not being the king that she hoped he would be, but then came his son, her grandson, Vladimir, and vladimir she had raised and taught about jesus and he would be a great king today there are dozens of monuments and statues ac- across ukraine and russia dedicated to vladimir the great now why well it's because in the year 988 vladimir sends orders throughout the city of kiev and throughout the region he's like my grandmother was right jesus christ is the one true king he deserves our worship I want you all to join me in the river tomorrow. You can learn about him, and if you choose, you may become his by being baptized. And, in, and that day, that day uh, they baptized, according to the legend, they baptized all of Kiev in the river. Thousands of people in one day were baptized. This is a famous event in Ukrainian and Russian history. Now, depending on who you ask, this is called either the baptism of Kiev or it's the baptism of Russia. And after this, the Christian faith spreads like wildfire across Kievan Rus. In other words, Olga didn't see the fruit of her faith during her lifetime. It came later. But when it did, it was overwhelming. So as you can see, there's a big difference between Olga before Jesus and in Jesus. And it's worth asking, like, how do you explain this? Like, what... How do you go from Olga before Christ who is burying and burning Drevlians alive to Olga in Christ who is building schools and churches and raising grandsons who love this Savior who teaches us to forgive and love our enemies? How did that happen? Well, we have to look again at what happened in those three months in Constantinople. Something big happened there. And all that the historians tell us is that she learned doctrine from the patriarch and she went to church every day. Well, what does that even mean? What does that mean that she went to church every day? Well, fortunately, where the history ends, the liturgy tells the story. As it turns out, the Eastern churches in the 10th century, they used the same basic liturgy that almost every Eastern Orthodox church uses today. It's called the Byzantine Rite. It was put together by a church father named John Chrysostom. And it follows the same basic pattern week by week. There's a a reading from Psalm 102. Then there's a reading from Psalm 145. Then, I believe, the the Beatitudes are read. Then there's another psalm. Then there's another reading, and this one is from one of the New Testament letters. Then there's another reading, a lengthy reading, from one of the four Gospels. Then comes the sermon, okay, and then uh, then uh, in the preparation for communion the priest recites all of Psalm 51. Now that is a ton of scripture. Even today that's why an orthodox service lasts sometimes anywhere from 2 to 3 hours. Now imagine you're Olga 10th century, okay? You go from the wilderness of Kievan Rus and you arrive in Constantinople. Again, don't you just feel like you've landed on another planet? Don't you just feel like you've landed in heaven itself? Now, Kievan Rus is a beautiful land. It is. It's a beautiful wilderness out there. But there is a different kind of beauty in Constantinople. And you see what people are capable of when they use their gifts for God's glory. And Olga's never seen anything like this. The, The architecture, the art, the clothing, the music, the choirs, the culture, and it's all for Christ. But even more impactful, every day she's hearing all this scripture, the Psalms and the epistles and the stories of Jesus. And I wonder how many times in those three months for two or three hours a day did she get to hear about, say, the wedding at Cana and the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water and the transfiguration and the woman caught in adultery and on and on. How many times did she get to, get to hear Jesus' parables in those three months? The, the prodigal son, and the ten virgins, and the rich man and Lazarus, and the, 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 the sowing of the seed. and In those three months, how many times did she hear Jesus teaching about himself as the good shepherd, or, or the vine and the branches? Or how many times did she hear about the Last Supper, and the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus, and his great commission to the disciples? And on, and on, and on. And I'm just like, no wonder Olga was transformed. No one like I get it. She had a dark past. She had done some pretty terrible things. But all of her sin, her darkness, her violence was no match for the power of God's word to change a heart. Of course she was changed. Of course she was changed. Of course. Listen to this from again from Hebrews 4. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Of course she was changed. Well, a few lessons I'd like to leave us with as I close. One is a lesson from history. This just seems important to say. we need to make a connection between the story of Olga, of Kiev and what's going on right now in Ukraine. It seems to me, if you, we don't understand this story and the history of the region, it, it probably seems totally random that out of nowhere, Putin would invade uh, Ukraine and try to wipe it off the map and add it to Russia. But remember, when Olga's grandson, Vladimir the Great, when he did that mass baptism in Kiev. They called that the baptism of Russia. Like before there was a Ukraine and Russia as two separate nations, there was Kiev and Rus. Before there was Moscow, Russia's capital was Kiev. So the history matters. These tensions, this this story goes back like a thousand years. So there's a lesson here about the history. I think there's also a lesson here about beauty. I think that it is easy to underestimate the power of beauty in the Christian life. I feel like in our culture, Christianity is, know, I've said this before, but I think Christianity is a very left-brained, pretty intellectual experience, you know? Like a, a Christian is a person who agrees with certain facts and logic and information. And that's all important. But it hasn't always been this way. And there was a time when Christians thought it was important to gather in these awe-inspiring, like, architectural marvels and to, to see paintings and statues and mosaics and candles and stained glass. That was important. And, and it was powerful to smell the smells of incense and flame. It was, it was important to hear choirs and church bells. Now, wh- wh- Why? Why would we do that? I mean, like, look around you. We're here in this beautiful space. We're surrounded by stained glass windows, high ceilings, that uh, hand-carved uh, paneling. And look at this table behind me. Look at the wall behind me, hand-carved with the scene of the Last Supper. And these lights hanging from the ceiling. We've got the pipe organ on either side, this massive building that costs a fortune to heat. Why in the world would, we, would people go to this trouble when it is so impractical? Why carve this massive, beautiful altar out of wood when all you need is a table? Why go to the trouble of putting in this amazing stained glass when all you need is to cover windows? Because beauty preaches the gospel without words. I mean, when Olga came to Constantinople, she would have been like she was transported to to a whole other place. Like, like, again, like she landed in heaven itself. And so let's not underestimate the role of art and music and liturgy. These signs, the forms, the symbols and images, they're powerful. They're powerful for the glory of God. And let me say a word as well. There's a lesson here, I think, about women. About women. Women rule, okay? There are so many stories of powerful, godly women in the, in the history of the church. I, I think that there is this uh, a stereotype, maybe a narrative, that most of the important people in the church have all been men. Or that the only interesting stories worth telling in church history are about men, and it's just not true, okay? Macrina, Monica, Perpetua, Lydia of Philippi, Catherine of Siena, Sienna, Julian of Norwich, Anne Askew, Lady Jane Grey, Harriet Tubman, Corey Tenboom. We're going to hear about her in a couple of weeks. On and on and on. You know, you may have to dig a little bit, but Christian history is full of amazing women. It's full of amazing women. Last lesson, last thought is about the word itself. Just a lesson about the word. You know it, it, it blows my mind that as far as we know, Olga never owned a Bible. In fact, there probably isn't a, a Bible in all of Kievan and Rus in this time. But look at how her life is changed after three months in the Scriptures. I, I just think that is super encouraging. Because a lot of us, I think we struggle to make time to spend in Scripture. It we, we, we struggle to make sense of what's there, and, and so maybe we... We have a hard time justifying the time that it takes to be in the Bible. I I think a lot of us feel like if we're not theologians or if we don't have much theological training, we can't get anything out of our time, and so what's the point? And I just want to say, like, no. No. You know, one of the great things about Olga's story is that we get to see how powerful the Word of God is in the life of somebody who has no training. No Bible background. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that we should not take classes or read other books or we shouldn't listen to podcasts. I'm not saying that at all. I think we, like, I'm a big fan of learning. I'm a big fan of multiple learning styles, okay? I'm saying that what we need for the Word to have its effect on us isn't expertise. It really is just time in the book. That first step really is just the discipline of setting aside time, physically putting ourselves in the space to sit down at a desk with the book open, faces down, in the book reading what's there and letting the word do its work. Isn't Olga's life just proof that that, that works? Isn't Olga's life just proof of the power of the scriptures? Isn't Doesn't it just prove what we heard in Hebrews 4.12, which is that the The word of God is alive and active. Listen to this as I close. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.